first verse is difficult because maybe some of your Bibles read slightly different. For example, in the CSB translation or in the NIV or the NASB translations, it says that Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned 42 years over Israel. And the reason for that is because the, the Hebrew manuscripts that our Old Testament is based on, when you just read it at face value, it sounds like Saul was one when he became king and he only reigned for two years. But we know from the book of Acts and elsewhere that Saul reigned for 40 years, and he was certainly older than one since he had a, an adult son who was fighting battles at this point. Uh, and, and so some translations draw actually from a Greek translation of the Old Testament from 200 B.C. that say he was 30 and then reigned 42 years. But I think the way that it reads in the, the ESV is correct, that it's giving timing because of that period of Saul and becoming king, that there was one year where he had been anointed and appointed as king before he was publicly recognized. And then what it's saying is that he has now been king for two years in the events described in this chapter. So again, this is 1 Samuel chapter 13, and I'll begin reading in verse 1 again. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he, uh, he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sands of the sea in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash, to the east of Beth Haven. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves, and in holes, and in rocks, and in tombs, and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the ford of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, 
when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandments of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul and met the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies, one company turned toward Ophrah in the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Bathhoron. And another company turned towards the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there were no blacksmiths to be found throughout all the land of Egypt. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his sons, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the, went out to the pass of Michmash. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your wisdom, your guidance as we explore this text together, that you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes uh, to respond to you in faith and repentance and to trust you more. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As I said, Saul here is facing the, the trial of his life, even though this is at the beginning of his reign as king. And you can see the, the setting for it in your Bible that he had sent away most of his army after his battle with the, the Ammonites. And that he had, um, I, I think that there was an element of pride 
in that, that he thought that he had enough in terms of soldiers, and this was the elite fighting group. But then the text says that his son, Jonathan, had an initial victory against the, the Philistines. And this emboldened Israel, and Saul potentially thought that this was his opportunity to, to vanquish the Philistines, just as he had done with the, the Ammonites. And so he called Israel to join him again at Gilgal to muster an army to fight with the Philistines. And it wasn't an accident that they gathered at Gilgal, because there was a, a promise from God through the prophet Samuel back in 1 Samuel 10, verse 7. After Saul had been anointed as king, this is what Samuel said. He said, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. And so there is this cryptic promise from Samuel. Go to Gilgal, wait there for seven days, and then I will come, offer sacrifice, and tell you what to do. And so in a sense, it reminds me of a gift card that you get, and then you forget to use it for a few years, and you're rifling through your drawer, and you're, oh, I have a a Wawa gift card. I'm going to take it and use it. But it seems that in a sense, Saul, after two years, is wanting to, to cash in this, this promise from Samuel, that finally he's getting around to, to going up to Gilgal to wait seven days for Samuel to arrive. But then as he begins to wait at Gilgal, you see the, the Philistine backlash in verse 5 to 7 in your Bible, that the Philistines don't like being defeated, that this is a powerful fighting force. And so they go up to, to fight against, the, the Phil, against Israel, and it says that they mustered an even larger force. Let me fix my mic here. It keeps pulling down. There we go. There we go. Hopefully that'll stay. Okay, good. So I won't distract everyone by continuing to mess with that. Very good. Uh, yeah, so the, the Philistines are, are gathering, and it says that they had chariots, they had horsemen, uh, they had troops like the sands of the sea. Uh, and in modern terms, that's like tanks and heavy machinery, that they have uh, the, the cutting-edge military equipment of the time. Israel is no match. They're outgunned, they're outmanned, and they are completely terrified. And you, and you can see the response that they have in your Bible. Uh, look at, at verse 6. It says, when the men of Israel saw they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the ford of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And so the army is, is falling apart. People are hiding themselves. They're, they're running away. And Saul continues to wait for Samuel to arrive. And it's a horrible position for any king or any military commander. 
1777, George Washington was fighting a battle at Princeton called the, the Battle of Princeton. And his army began to, to break up. They were tired. They were outnumbered. And in a decisive moment of leadership and trial, uh, George Washington rode his horse into the line of fire, rallying the troops to continue fighting and to not break their lines. And there's actually a, a beautiful painting called Washington Rallying the Americans at the Battle of Princeton. That You can Google it at some point. But that's the, the trial that Saul is facing at this point. Is he going to have the George Washington ride his horse into the, the line of fire moment? Or will he fail in leadership? How will he respond to this moment of trial? And then we see that he responded with failure. So for the rest of our time today, we're going to look at three failures of Saul in this text. And I heard someone say recently that it's, it's good to learn from your mistakes, but it's better to learn from other people's mistakes. And I think that there's, there's truth here as well, that as we look at these three failures of Saul, hopefully we can learn from his failure and grow in our faith as well. So here's the first failure of Saul in the text, that Saul failed to wait. He failed to wait because he arrived at Gilgal and he waited six days. And that's a long time when you're facing a very powerful enemy army. You're not in the most strategic location in terms of military tactics. And it's, it's like when you watch your watch go around and it, a minute feels like it takes a long time. And so when you're, when you're waiting for something important, I'm sure it felt like an eternity to Saul. And you could imagine him pacing back and forth in the camp, going to bed, waking up again, still no Samuel, and repeating that day after day as his army is scattering, as people are fleeing across the Jordan, hiding themselves in caves and cisterns and, and wells. And so finally he makes it to the, the seventh day that he has waited almost to the, the bitter end. But then he sit, think, begins to think that Samuel is not coming, that he's not going to keep his promise. And so at some point on the seventh day, Saul calls his attendants. He brings the animals for the sacrifice, and he offers the sacrifice, the burnt offering, calls on the Lord. And again, trying to get into the mind of Saul here in the text, that, that he is trying to have a George Washington rallying the troops moment, uh, because he's already been hailed as a prophet because he had prophesied early on, a few years earlier. He wanted to seem like a, a pious Israelite, that he's offering sacrifice, that he's calling on the Lord, that God is going to deliver them, and that maybe this would draw the forces together to stay faithful in this key moment. And of course, there's this sin of offering sacrifice when only a priest was allowed to offer sacrifice, not the king. But I actually think that the primary sin 
of Saul here in this text was the failure to wait on the Lord. That waiting on the Lord, waiting on the promises of God is so hard and it tests our faith. The Reformation Heritage Study Bible says that waiting is one of the most difficult tests of faith. Then later in the same paragraph, it says that waiting time is never wasted time as it increases our sense of dependence on the Lord. And that's why we are commanded over and over again in Scripture to wait on the Lord. Now, we would be here for a long time waiting if I were to read all of the passages, but I'll read it just a few. Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Or Psalm 37, 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Isaiah 40, verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall, be, shall renew their strength. Lamentations 3.25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. That is, believers, we have the, the promises of God that he will never leave us or forsake us. We know the promise of his love throughout our lives, but when we're facing trials, it is hard to wait. If you're in the health trial or the financial trial or the marriage trial or the spiritual trial, that the call is continue to to wait, that when we suffer, that when our faith is tested, that we're called to, to wait, trusting in the firm secure promises of God. But then the question is, what does it look like to wait on the Lord? And I think that practically, it is when we start with prayer before we move to practical action. That Saul had been waiting on the promises of God, but then he said, we need to act. We need to to do something to solve the problem. And we do that as well, that something goes wrong in our life, that we face a trial, we face a tragedy, and that immediately we go into problem-solving mode, trying to, to fix the problem, trying to make it better. But it's an act of waiting on the Lord when we take time to stop and to pray, to consider, to reflect before we act that it's what it looks like to wait on the Lord. So the question is, where this morning are you called to wait on the Lord? What would it look like to wait on the Lord this morning? So again, we learn from the first failure of Saul here in our text, that he failed to wait on the Lord But now let's turn to his second failure, that he failed to wait on the Lord, but then also Saul failed to take personal responsibility. Look again at verse 10 in your Bible. It 
It says that as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And that's interesting that he actually goes out to to greet him. Either he's oblivious to what he's done wrong, or in some sense he recognizes his error and he's going to go out and try to act like everything is okay, to, to give a warm greeting to Samuel as he arrives. And you can imagine Samuel in this moment, probably, he's an old man, probably a long gray beard. And just to think of his expression, that I'm sure he had a very serious expression on his face, that he, he didn't begin with any kind of warm greeting. But look at what he says. What have you done? Whether he said it in a loud voice or a soft voice, we don't know. But you can, you can hear the seriousness of his tone. What have you done? And then you can see how Saul responds to that accusation. What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And so you can see the the kinds of excuses that he is making here in our text as he fails to take responsibility. That first he's blaming his army and everyone else. He's saying, my army was running away. They were hiding. I was losing the confidence of the men. It's their fault, not mine. And then he blames Samuel as well. He says, you did not come within the days appointed. That this is your fault. I did this because you didn't arrive at the right time. And then he also says, I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. That this, this wasn't even, I didn't want to. I knew it was a bad idea, but I, I needed to call on the Lord. I needed to seek the favor of the Lord. That I, I did it for good reasons. I had pious motivations for doing this. So you can't hold me responsible for my action. And isn't that the way that we so often respond when we face an accusation? When our spouse comes to us and says, you've done something wrong. There's that moment of decision in your head where you're thinking, all right, am I going to say, I was tired. I had a hard day at work. You don't understand all that I've been going through. I tried my best. I had good intentions. I meant to do the right thing. Or in the moment of decision, will it be that softening of the heart to take personal responsibility and to say, yes, I know I did something wrong, that I failed in this place. So this is a call for each and every one of us to begin to to practice what it looks like to take personal responsibility. Even if there is 90% of the accusation that is untrue, to have that humility within our hearts to examine that 10% and to say, yeah, I think there may be truth in that 10%. And so I'm going to take personal responsibility. 
unlike Saul here in our text. So that's the second failure of Saul. But then here's the third and the final failure of Saul. That he failed to wait. He failed to take personal responsibility. But then finally, Saul failed to repent. And obviously, repentance is connected to taking personal responsibility. But I think that they're slightly distinct. Because there's a horizontal dimension to taking personal responsibility, to admitting that you, you did something wrong. But repentance is this turning from sin to, to God, that it's this return to God, knowing that he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, to, to recognize that vertical dimension when we have sinned and when we have failed. And I love how the, the old author, Matthew Henry, puts it in his commentary on this text. He says that it's not sinning that ruins men, but sinning and not repenting, falling and not getting up again. And I'll read that one more time. It's not sinning that ruins men, but sinning and not repenting, falling and not getting up. You can think of the differences between Saul and David. That we'll see that as we continue through the book of 1 Samuel, that David sins. He sinned in his wrath when Abigail turned his wrath away, that he sinned in adultery with Bathsheba. He sinned by having Uriah murdered. He sinned by numbering his people in a census, that that he sinned numerous times throughout his life as king. And we could debate whether the sin of adultery is worse than the, the sin of not waiting or believing the prophetic commands of God, or or whether the sin of murder is worse than offering a sacrifice that you weren't permitted to offer, that you could debate that point. But the, the point is, is that both of them sinned against the Lord. But the primary difference was then the response, that David, when he sinned, turned in repentance and humility to the Lord, taking personal responsibility before others, repentance before God, But then Saul, here in our text and and later as we'll see, continues to dig his heels into the ground. That he continues to defend himself, continues to see himself as being in the right, refuses to repent, refuses to return to the Lord. And this is true for any of us here who are refusing to repent and to acknowledge fault. That God is always the, the father of the prodigal son with open arms to sinners saying, only return to me. That's what he says in Joel chapter 2 verse 12. He says, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So this morning, where do you need to repent? 
Where are you holding on to your sin? Where do you want to continue to defend yourself, not only before others, but before God? And do you recognize the mercy and the love of God who is calling you this morning and and every day to return to him, to know his love and his favor that is on offer to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But then as we wrap up today, look in your Bible how God responds to the failure of Saul. That he, in verse 13, he rejects Saul as being king. And again, remember that this is two years into kingship. He reigned for 40 years. And so 38 of his 40 years would be with his vertical rupture with God being officially rejected as being king. And it doesn't mean that, that he was God's plan A and David was God's plan B, that God only has his plan A and God's purposes are always accomplished. But the point in this text is that when we consider his rejection, that God is not the author of evil, that, that Saul is responsible for his sin, that God is both sovereign and we are responsible. So that's the, the first response of God, that he rejects Saul. But then the final response is that God promises a new king, a man after his own heart. And we know that that is David in the immediate context, uh, that David who was called a man after God's own heart, who waited on the Lord who refused to take vengeance on Saul later when he had the opportunity waiting for the justice and the vindication of the Lord. The the David who took responsibility when he sinned, who repented, who continued to return to the Lord. But that's just the near horizon. But the farther horizon from the perspective of our text is the man after God's own heart, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And that is, we, we consider Jesus Christ, that, that he comes to us as the, the true man after God's own heart. Because he is truly God and, and truly man in one person. And that Jesus, as the God-man, is able to stand in the place of Samuel in our text. That he is, he is able to be the prophet who proclaims the word of God to us. But then he's also able to be the king who rules us and protects us and defends us. But then Jesus is a unique king because he is the king who is also a priest. That he is then able not only to rule as king, but to offer sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And that's what Jesus does ultimately at the end of his life. That that Jesus offers himself as the prophet, that he is both the, as the priest. He is the priest offering the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice itself being offered for the forgiveness of our sins. And it's because of what Jesus did on the cross, what is symbolized and sealed here in this meal. It's because of this reality that we can return to him over and over again when we sin. That when we follow in the failure of Saul, that we know that we can return to the Lord because Jesus has opened the way into the most holy place through his perfect 
sacrifice that we can have confidence because of Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king. And as we come then to this meal, reminder that if you are here and, and you've never repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, we're glad that you're here. Uh, but this meal is not for those who think that they have it together, that this meal is for those who are taking personal responsibility for their sins and turning to the Lord in repentance and faith. And so the, the qualification for this meal is not to be good in and of yourself, but the, the qualification is to acknowledge before God that you are not good, that you have failed, and that God is faithful in Christ, and that he forgives those who come to him pleading for mercy. So again, if, you're, if you aren't repenting, if you aren't trusting in Jesus, we encourage you to wait, to watch this unfold. But for the rest, you don't have to be a member of Hope Church or of a Presbyterian church, but to be one who is trusting in Christ, has made that public by being part of a church that proclaims the gospel, and not barred by the action of any church from taking this, but ultimately one that can profess the faith that we hold together. So please turn with me in your bulletin to page 9, and let's profess the, the faith that we hold using the ancient words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Because on the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So come forward in any order that you like. You can come down the middle. Um, I'll be over here with Mike. Um, I can break off a piece of bread and give it to you, or we have gluten-free here on the table if you need it. You can take a cup, return to your chair, and then we and Ernie will be going around with a tray. If, if you have mobility issues, you feel free to raise your hand and he will bring it to you. Uh, and then we will take it together at the end. So let's pray. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for the times that we fail to wait on the Lord, uh, that we try to take matters into our own hands, we try to solve our own problems, instead of waiting in faith, trusting in your promises to be with us in the midst of our trials. And Lord, we pray that you would help us as well to 
take responsibility when we sin, uh, but not simply to take responsibility on the horizontal plane, but on the vertical, Lord, that we would take responsibility before you, that we would acknowledge our sin, that we would acknowledge our failure, we would acknowledge all the ways that we fall short of your glory and what we do, what we left, leave undone. And Lord, we pray that again this morning we can remember your mercy and that ultimately it is our failure to repent that will keep us from you. Um, not simply our sin, but Lord, our failure to acknowledge our sin and to turn. So Lord, we pray for you to to work that repentance. We know that repentance itself is a gift of your spirit that comes to us through regeneration as we are brought from death to life. And so we pray for that spiritual gift of repentance and that it wouldn't be a one-time repentance, but that we would live lives of repentance, turning daily from sin to Christ, pursuing after him a new obedience, knowing that we are forgiven and accepted because of what he has done for us. Lord, we thank you for the picture of that here in this meal. Though we know that Jesus isn't bodily present here and that this is ordinary juice and ordinary bread, yet in an extraordinary way you promise to be with your people as we gather in worship and to, to use this as an instrument to strengthen us. And so, Lord, we pray for that spiritual, supernatural work to be done again today that you would nourish us, nourish us, as we feed on Christ by faith. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small, Child of weakness, watch 